good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, let's turn tonight in our Bibles, or one last time, uh, to account in the life of Elisha, uh, actually pertaining to his sickness and death in 2 Kings chapter 13. Um, we're going to read together from the verse uh, number 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash the king of Israel came down unto him, and wept over his face, and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Afik till they have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, And I shouldst have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till they had consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died, and they buried him, and the band of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulchre of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. But Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, and the Lord was gracious unto them, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So Hazael king of Syria died, and Ben-Hadad his son reigned in his stead. And Jehoash the son of Jehoazaz took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoazaz his father by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. Elisha consistently in his life and ministry has pointed us to the truth that, there's a, that there is a God in heaven. And a central theme in the whole Bible is that God is indeed the one who is victorious over his enemies. And the Messiah, the Christ of God, would be a king who would reign forever, having conquered all his enemies. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 bruises and crushes the serpent's head. The Bible is a book of conflict and conquest. And Christ must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed, of course, is death. Therefore, even now, Christ is reigning, putting all enemies under his feet. And it is that theme of conflict and conquest that is again given to us in these last verses of 2 Kings chapter 13. It is that theme of conflict 
and conquest. The nation of Israel on Judah, they are often at war. And these events demonstrate that conflict exists between God and those who are opposed to God in their many forms. The theme here is of conquest in the spirit of conflict. That's the theme, even with the strange events of Elisha's bones and the resurrection of a man who touches the bones of Elisha. Here, from verse 14 of 2 Kings 13, Elisha is dying. Some suggest, those who look at the dates of all these things, they suggest that Elisha's influence over the nation may have stretched to somewhat of 70 years. Joash is an evil king. You look back to verse number uh, 11, you have the account of uh, Joash. Now, just to be clear, the names here, Second uh, Kings 13, mentions Joash, king of Judah, and then Jehoash, who is the king of Israel. And it is Jehoash, shortened to Joash, who is the king also of Israel. Just to see if any confusion there, you have two different Joashes. But Joash of Israel, verse 11, is said to do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, departing not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's an evil king. His father has died, and now Elisha is about to die. And I think panic sets into the heart of Joash. His lament in verse 14, of course, is the same that was used by Elisha when Elijah departed. Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. The words indicate that the man of God was as an army to the people of God. Such was the power and influence of a man of God with the word of God. He is as an army. And yet I think there's a contrast here. Elisha spoke these words in faith, and I believe that Joash here is speaking these words in a spirit of panic. Elisha utters the words, and after he utters them, he performs a miracle. He's asked the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And of course, the Lord God of Elijah is still with Elisha. Yet here, Joash's words, I believe, are not of faith, but of despair. Elisha knew the works of God, and they would continue when Elijah departed, but Joash had no such faith. Joash is smitten with fear and unbelief. And yet God, in his sovereign mercy, is pleased to encourage him. You have this account of the bow and the arrows, this is an act of visual prophecy. He is to shoot them toward the east, where the Syrians were, indicating that God intended and had a purpose and promise of victory. And that promise was confirmed as he was to smite the arrows on the ground. Verse 18, I think the sense here is he opened the window and he was to shoot the arrows out the window to the ground. It's not that he held the arrows and smote the ground with it. Rather, he shot the arrows from the bow into the ground. And he was to do that in the promise that he would consume the Syrians, verse number 17. Yet Joash shows his lack of faith, shows his lack of zeal, and he stops before he was told. Verse 19, he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God is wroth with him. Thou shouldst have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. And so that's 
is an account of Joash stopping short of what he ought to have done. And the result of that is they would just smite Syria three times. We then read this intriguing story of Elisha's death and the resurrection of the man who touches his bones. But that is then followed by the fulfillment of the promise. Down in verse number 25, Joash, Jehoash, he then has this victory three times. So the promise that he's going to smite Syria three times, verse 19, is then fulfilled in verse 25. Indicating, I believe, that this entire body, including the account of Elisha's bones, is to be understood as a unit of thoughts. And these latter events in the life of Elisha, perhaps 40 plus years after the things we saw last week, they show us how victories are wrought for God. We're still living in days when we are to pray for victories. We are to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's a prayer for victory. We are to still pray for God to show us fresh victories in our day. We're still in conflict. Christ is still reigning. He's still putting his enemies under his feet. And we're to keep on praying for victories. You see, we triumph in and through Christ and his victory. But the impact of Christ's victory is still being worked out. And we're still praying over these various things. So let me show you three lessons regarding how God achieves victories in his work. First of all, victory in the Lord's work is always by grace alone. Verse 23 makes reference to the Lord's grace. And the Lord was gracious upon them. Now this victory, these three victories over the Syrians, was certainly not earned by Jehoash's goodness. We understand he's a man that's following the sins of Jeroboam. He's an evil king. He's not a commendable king. But God has made covenant with his people. And so verse 23, he had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant itself, a covenant of grace. He's entered into a gracious covenant. Abraham an idolater. There's an interesting reference just came to me again in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Let me read it to you. Uh, regarding the people of God, they are to say before the Lord, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. How can the people of God be referred to as being a Syrian? Well, John Gill says this, Assyrian, ready to perish, was my father, meaning Jacob, who, though born in Canaan, his mother was Assyrian. And his grandfather Abraham was of Chaldea, a part of Syria. And Jacob married two wives in Syria, and all his children were born there, but Benjamin, where he lived 20 years. It's fascinating, really. You have Syria as a birthplace of the nation, and yet that same Syria now attacking the people. But the point we make here is that God has taken his people out of the world. Saved them out of the world. Saved them out of their enemies in sovereign, gracious covenants. And it is that covenant that then ensures their victory over the world. Their victory is all of grace. 
And so as we continue in the work of God, challenges will come, opportunities will rise. And what is our hope of progress and victory? Is it our merit individually or as a church? No, it's only in the gracious covenant promises of God. The promise is sure. Christ shall reign. He must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. I think of the words we saw uh, last Lord's Day in Micah chapter 7. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which has sworn unto your fathers from the days of old. God has entered an oath-bound covenant to establish his kingdom. We understand there are various ways in which he brings chastisement and judgment upon Israel, but through it all there is a believing remnant preserved, and it is that same covenant of grace that is the foundation whereby we hope that God will still give us victories today. In his grace we can still have the hope and expectation of God conquering the enemies, those who oppose him being caused to bow the knee in salvation. Those who now shake their fist, coming to the point where they must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those are the victories that we can still have this certain confidence that God will bring about. The church labors. We pray, we preach. God blesses. But that blessing is never, ever earned. Now that does not take away from what I'm going to say towards the end of this message. But as we believe in the promises of God, we must understand that any progress is all of God's sovereign grace. The second place, though, victory in the Lord's work, and these are connected thoughts, victory comes by the power of God. Now, there are two signs of this shown in this account. There is the sign of Elisha's hands. Verse number 16 Elisha, talking to the king, tells the king to put his hand upon the bow. And then the king puts his hand, Elisha puts his hand upon the king's hand. In other words, God's victory comes as God's power is delivered through God's mediator. There's an obvious lesson here. Elisha here is picturing Christ who works in us, through us, and even with us. Mark 16, the Lord working with them. We are to take the gospel bow. But Christ in his mercy, he puts his hands upon ours so that the power to shoot the gospel arrows is the power that comes from Christ's mighty power, not our feeble arms. But it's the mighty power of Christ whose hands are upon ours that then shoots forth the gospel bow. We are simply... Those who have treasure in earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God, and not of us. And we're seeing that here in a, in a beautiful picture. Elisha, well, he's a frail man, but he has the power of God. And with the power of God, he is able to give power into this king's hands to shoot these arrows. There is also the sign of Elisha's bones. This is a sign miracle. Verse number 20, Elisha died. They buried him. It's, a, it's an incredible story. Uh, two verses. People read it perhaps once a year. Never stop to wonder what on earth is going on here. Well, the Moabites, well, they've invaded 
There's a burial time. There's a man they're going to bury. They find another band coming against them. They have this burial herded. And they think to themselves, here's a nearby grave. We'll just throw this man in here. Wow, they get a surprise. They put the man in, and the man quickly comes out again. It is, it is an incredible account. But where it sits in the portion is very, very important. There's just been a promise given to this king. You will smite Syria three times. Promise given to him. The same king, who I believe is despairing over the future as Elisha dies. My father, my father, you're leaving. What's going to happen next? And so Syria is going to be smitten, but Elisha has now died, verse number 20. And then you've got this, this, this account, and I believe it's an account given as a confirmation of the promise to the unbelieving, fear, fearful Joash. One commentator says this, It was the God of the prophet, and not the prophet, that was Israel's defense and might. It needed not a living prophet. The same power which stood behind him in life could work deliverance through him after he was dead. Because the power, in essence, does not rest in the man, it rests in God. And therefore God is still able to do this. And thus this man says, the main point was not the man, but his mission. Matthew Henry says this, God's grace is not tied to one hand. He can bury his workmen yet carry on his work. And we trust in that. As one generation makes way to another, we trust that the power of God is still residing in his church. That's the main point here, I believe. It is that we would see that the victory that God accomplishes is only coming through the power of God. Oh yes, there's a type here as well, of course. We see the type that life comes through contact with a dead prophet, pointing forward, of course, to Christ and our life that comes through our union in Christ's death. That's here as well. But I believe the main point we would see is that God's power is still available to his people. Though the prophet goes, God never goes. And so victory in the Lord's work is always by grace alone. Victory in the Lord's work comes by the power of God. But in the third place, and unless you have the first two things clear, you may not properly grasp the third. But the third point is this. Victory in the Lord's work comes in proportion to our faith. Confession time. Uh, this is a real struggle. God's will is eternal. God's will will always be done perfectly as he intended it to be done. It was in the will of God that Joash would enjoy three victories over the Syrians. That was the eternal purpose of God because that is what happens. However, verse 19 is clear. The man of God's wrath, thou shouldst have smitten five or six times, then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. You didn't smite the ground with the arrows enough. You stayed when you should have kept on shooting. 
In other words, it seems to me the text is saying that if he had continued on, he would have known greater blessings. In other words, he did not enjoy the blessings he might have done due to his lack of faith and zeal. You see, verse 18, I believe, does show us a display of unbelief. He smote thrice and stayed. There was no limit set. Verse simply 17 simply says, Till they have consumed them. There was no limit set in verse 18. Take the arrows, smite upon the ground. And the response in verse 19 comes that he ought to have done more. To stay is to lack conviction. It is to lack zeal. It is a display of half-hearted obedience. When our whole heart is not in the work, we are showing a spirit of unbelief in the work. And so the display of unbelief in verse 18, the response to unbelief in verse 19, is that the man of God is wroth. And in the text, we have nothing to suggest that Elisha was acting in the wrong by being wrathful here. In fact, I suggest he's acting in the spirit of Christ. Mark chapter 3, verse number 5. And when Jesus had looked around on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Mark chapter 16, verse 14. Afterward, he, that is Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not. The spirit of Elisha at being wrathful towards the king is the very same spirit that we see epitomized in the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And when he sees unbelief, he is grieved. He's grieved with their unbelief and hardness of heart. And so that is the spirit of Christ. And the result of that unbelief was limited success in the Lord's cause. The blind man was told, according to your faith, be it unto you. Turn, please, to Mark chapter 17. Mark chapter, oh, sorry, no, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 17, sorry. Mark, or Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Confusion there. Mark 11 has a similar passage. Mark 11. You, you turn to Mark, Matthew 17. Mark 11. And the verse number 23 says, That whosoever shall say on this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. And in Matthew 17, then you've turned there, you have the account of the disciples' inability to cast the uh, demon out of the child. And you have there in verse 19, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Due to unbelief, they were not able to secure a victory for the progress of the kingdom of Christ. There's a conflict here. There's a demon and a child, but they could not see the victory. And Christ himself says, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, verse 20, if ye have faith as a grain mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. I be of this kind, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. 
Now, the reference on mountains here, I believe, refers back to Zechariah chapter 4 and the verse 7, where mountains are used as an image of obstacles in the work of God. And God is pleased to remove those mountainous obstacles for the progress of the kingdom. And the sense is, if the disciples, by believing prayer and fasting, if they had laid hold upon God, then they could have removed those obstacles and have achieved the victory. So when you compare both Old and New Testament, it would seem to me that there is a proportionality between our success as soldiers of Christ and the strength of our faith. Oh, I understand the people of God are always fearful of being presumptuous. We don't presume that God would do this or that. The hymn writer said, My soul asks what thy wilt, thou canst not be too bold. Since his own blood for thee was spilt, what else can he withhold? We are fearful of presumption. Perhaps we ought to be much, much more fearful of unbelief. Fear a spirit of unbelief. Are we, are we through unbelief, not seeing what we could see in the mercy of God? Please don't give us a twist about God's sovereign will and this particular application. Because what will happen is, you'll get yourself in such a mind that you'll rationalize your unbelief and say, well, God willed it anyway. Take the Bible for what it says. It says, if ye have faith, then you shall see this. And it says, if you'd smitten more times, you'd have more victories. But you stayed, and you're only getting three victories. Oh, those three victories, they're by grace, they're by the power of God, but you could have more. So please, just let the Bible say what it says. And may it challenge our hearts to fear and tremble at unbelief. A.W. Pink, an absolute proponent of God's sovereignty, says this. Most Christians expect little from God, ask little, and therefore receive little, and are content with little. As a church, or as individuals, could that be true of us tonight? May God answer our prayers, Lord. Increase our faith. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.